0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rohit and I'm really excited and honored to be your host for today's Awakened Talk along with my friend, Migna. Welcome and thank you all for joining us. The purpose of these talks is to share stories that help plant seeds for a more compassionate society while fostering our own inner transformation. We do this by holding collective conversations with guest speakers from all walks of life who inspire us to live in a more service-oriented way. And behind each of these calls is an entire team of service-based volunteers whose invisible work allows us to hold this space. Uh, so thank you all for joining. And our today's special guest speaker is Nipun Mehta. And the theme for today's talk is Birth of me, death of me, and birth of we. Uh, the call flow is going to be uh, today roughly. Uh, uh, I'm going to invite Megna to share a bit of context, and then uh, we'll hear from Nipun, uh, one more person, and then Nippon. And towards the end, we'll also have some for space for live questions and answers. So, if uh, questions and reflections. So, if at any point uh, uh, you're moved to offer a comment or a question. Uh, you can do so through the live stream form uh, and we'll be happy to uh, receive those comments. And so thank you again for joining us and let us start with a minute of silence to anchor ourselves in the present moment.
1: Thank you. Welcome back. Thank
2: you, Rohit. I am really grateful to be on this special conversation, a conversation that's really close to my heart as well with all of you. So thank you for joining us on this dialogue today on death of me and birth of me. Death is a very sensitive topic and a difficult one too, as we all know. Uh, but just in the last two years alone, it has found a seat in our dining table conversations. It has invited us to be humble and dig deeper into what is it that death is asking us to look into. It has asked us to really wholeheartedly cherish everything that we hold dear. Losing a loved one is never easy, nor the thought of not being around lose a, a loved one is not easy to process either. And yet we are here today to explore this collectively. We all have our own conversations on death, interpretations of death and thoughts of how do we process this in the times to come. And we are here together today with, all, with each other. So thank you for exploring this with us. But before we move on to our guest speaker today, whom we are all very excited to listen to, I wanted to invite Chirag Bhai to share a little. To give a little background on Chirag Bhai, um, he is a committed volunteer sincere seeker and a regular meditator. A few weeks ago, we were in an email exchange with him and he happened to mention um, a story of his daughter Pratna who passed away 10 years ago. She was only eight years old and that really touched all of us. It brought a very different conversation in, in the mix. To process somebody so young, to lose someone so young is not easy. But what's really inspiring is how Chiragbhai and his entire family has processed this experience. First of all, to accept it, then to process it, and then to transform that experience and show how it is important to live in our day-to-day lives. It, we are deeply moved and we're really excited that that became a seed of this conversation, where this series actually was a seed of that conversation. And... We are really glad because we are touching upon nuances that we had never thought about. And we hope to we hope to explore it even more deeply. So thank you for joining us. And with that, I'd like to invite Jirag Bhai to share a little and uh, take us through. Over to you, Jirag Pai.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, Megna Min. Sabse Pele our invitation ko respect the key job. उन सबको मैं दिल से थैंक यू कहता हूं। मैं मेरी बात की शुरुआत एक घटना से करना चाहता हूं। आज से 10 साल पहले, 7 फरवरी 2012, उस दिन मंगलवार था। 10-11 घंटे की बिजनेस ट्रेनिंग लेके, जब रात को करीबन 8 बजे मैं मेरे घर में टीवी रूम में पहुंचा, उस वक्त मेरी साल की बेटी और फिर वो नीचे उतर के वापस खेलने चली गई और उसके आधे ही घंटे में हमने उसे हमारे घर के बाहर के पैसेज में जब देखा तब वो इस दुनिया में नहीं थी उसे एन्यूरिज्म ऑफ़ द ब्लड वेसल नाम का रोग था जो लाखों में किसी एक को होता है और जिसके कोई सिम्टम्स नहीं होते हैं और इसकी वजह से उ तब अवेकिंग टॉक के वॉलियंटर रोहित भाई ने मुझे पूछा कि आप इस घटना से क्या सीखें? तब मन में एक ही विचार आया कि मुझे नहीं पता है कब किस व्यक्ति के साथ की मेरी कौन सी मुलाकात आखिरी मुलाकात होगी और दूसरा एक विचार ये भी आया कि कब कौन सा दिन मेरे जीवन का आखिरी दिन होगा मृत्यु एक ऐसी ज्यादातर लोग मृत्यु के लिए तैयार नहीं होते हैं। बुद्धि के स्तर पर हम सबको पता है कि एक दिन ये परिवार, मिलकत, स्टेटस ये सब छोड़के जाना है। जब भी समशान जाते हैं, तब वो बहुत वैराग्य जाता है, सब कुछ निसार लगता है। लेकिन कुछ ही घंटों में वापस सब भूल जाते हैं, क्योंकि अनुभव या खुद की मृत्यु का विचार करने से ही डर जाते हैं और जब सच में हमारे जीवन से कोई चला जाता है तब तो उस दुख से निकलने में महीनों कभी-कभी तो सालों निकल जाते हैं कई बार हम ये भी देखते हैं कि ज्यादातर लोग जब अपनी ही मृत्यु नजदीक होते हैं तब उन्हें ऐसा फील होता है कि काश मैंने मेरी तब एक विचार आया कि मृत्यु पर डेथ पर एक टॉक रखा जाए जिसके दो परपस हो सबसे पहला मृत्यु को हमेशा हम हमारी अवेयरनेस में रखने से कैसे हम हमारी जीवन की प्रायोरिटी बदल सकते हैं और इससे कैसे हम एक फुलफिलमेंट वाला सही तरीके का जीवन जीने के लिए प्रेरित हो सकते हैं सो उससे उस प्रेजेंट होना वो कैसे एक नया दृष्टि कौन पाए जिससे अपने दुख को सही तरीके से प्रोसेस कर पाए। सो हमको लगा इस तरह के डिस्कशन की आज बहुत नीड है और फिर हम सोचने लगे ऐसी कौन व्यक्ति है जो मृत्यु पर इस तरह का डायलॉग कर सके और हम सबको नए तरीके से जीने के लिए सोचने के लिए प्रेरित कर सके। तब हमें निपुण मैं उनके जीवन से, उनकी करुणा से, उनके प्यार और सेवा भाव से बहुत ही इंस्पायर हुआ हूँ और उनसे प्रेरणा लेके मैंने मेरे जीवन में कई बड़े डिसीजन लिए हैं और आज मैं बहुत खुश हूँ और मुझे पता था कि मृत्यु निपुण बाई का सबसे फेवरेट सब्जेक्ट है हर दिन वो अपने पेरेंट्स से इस टॉपिक पे और ये जीवन की अनित्यता पर एक टॉक दे और उन्होंने बहुत उदारता से तुरंत ही हाँ कर दी और आज हम उन्हें सुनने वाले हैं वैसे तो निपुण भाई का इंट्रोडक्शन देने के लिए सच में दो घंटे कम पड़े फिर मैं मैं दो मिनट में उनका परिचय देने की कोशिश करता हूँ निपुण भाई मेत्ता यूएसए में रहते ह निपण भाई यएसए म रहत ह पांच लाख से ज्यादा वोल्युमेंटर जुड़े हैं उनकी प्रेरणा से कर्मा किचन अवेकिन सर्कल डेली गुड कर्मा ट्यूब अवेकिन टॉक काइंड स्प्रिंग लीडरशिप सर्कल जैसे कई जीवन को अपलिफ्ट करने वाले प्रोजेक्ट्स चल रहे हैं निपुण भाई अनेक लोगों के कल्याण मित्र हैं उन्होंने लाखों लोगों के जीवन को मौन रहके दुनिया से अपने आप को के साधना करते हैं और उनको जो एवर्ड्स और एचीवमेंट्स मिली है उनकी लिस्ट तो बहुत लंबी है केवल दो चीज बताऊंगा अमेरिका में जब गरीबी और असमंता दूर करने के लिए काउंसिल बनी तो प्रेसिडेंट ओबामा ने वो काउंसिल के मेंबर में उनको चुना था और दूसरा � तो so, निपुण भाई को दुनिया में बहुत सारे लोग उनके आइडिया शेयर करने के लिए बुलाते हैं और वो जब भी बोलते हैं दिल से बोलते हैं और हमारे दिल को छू जाता है मुझे तो हमेशा ऐसा लगता है कि वो बस मैं उनको सुनता ही रहूँ ऐसे निपुण भाई को सुनना हम सब बहुत बड़ा सौभाग्य है मैं निपुण so thank you. Thank you very much, Nipun Bhai.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chirag. Uh, for those that couldn't understand Hindi, um, that was very beautiful, uh, poetic, and from the heart. Uh, Chirag uh, and his family lost their eight-year-old daughter 10 years ago. Um, and every year uh, they host a gathering in, uh, in the spirit of who she was. Um, and I think Chirag is, uh, it's, it's a real honor, uh, Chirag, that you thought of this. Um, and perhaps we can actually thank Pratna. Her name was, Chirag's daughter's name was Pratana, which means prayer. Um, and so if you think about the larger field of Pratana, uh, larger field of prayer. I think we're all a part of it. And actually there's a whole series. Um, this is the first of that series. And, and that whole series is because of Pratana as well. So we are very grateful, Chirag, uh, to you, entire Shah family and, um, and especially Pratana uh, for inviting um, these profound thoughts um, and dialogues. I wish um, I wish we could just do a circle of sharing um, because death is so unique and contextual to every person um, and to every, I wouldn't even say every person, to every mind moment. Um, any moment that arises, how we transition from it is very contextual to all the causes and conditions that arise in that moment. Um, and so it doesn't um, yeah, I don't think there can be a recipe. Um, there can be uh, swiping sorts of conclusions that you can draw across the board. Um, but I think I, for me personally, uh, death has actually been a very profound, um, has held a very profound space in my consciousness um, I'm very frequently, I, I won't say how how frequently because yeah. that might uh, make you feel like I'm not normal. <laughs> um, but it's, it's very much at the forefront of my consciousness. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and in some sense,
0: um, Nipun, we just, uh, I think just before, you know, you start your share, we actually wanted to start on that note on on Pratna. So there's a quick prayer by uh, one of the volunteers, actually Pratna's mother. So we'll just invite her to, you know, invoke the sacred blessings for this space. And then the stage Perfect. is over to you. Perfect. So I'll invite uh, Puneven for offering a short prayer to the group. <laughs>
5: अवसर बैर बैर नहीं आवे Bair बैर नहीं आवे अवसर बैर बैर नहीं आवे जो जाने तू कर भलाई जनम जनम सुख पावे अवसर बैर बैर नहीं आवे तन धनि शोपन सब ही झूठा तन जोपन सब ही प्राण पलक में जावे अवसर Betty, बेर, बेर नहीं आवे अवसर बेर बेर नहीं आवे Betty, baden, काम को I need you, काम को he को burned a I was saddled. Bad a नहीं heave. I was साँच बसत है जाके दिल में साँच बसत है ताको झूठ भावे आनंद प्रभु चलित पंथ में सुमरे सुमरे गुण अवसर बैर बैर नहीं आवे जो जाने तू कर ले भलाई जनम जनमे सुख पावे अवसर बैर बैर नहीं आवे अवसर बैर बैर नहीं आवे
0: Thank you so much, Muniren, back to you and Thank you.
4: Yeah, there's something so uh, solemn and divine to reflect on our impermanence. I think it's very humbling um, to do that. I, I think when I was young, I was actually afraid of death, uh, which is probably why it, it was at the forefront um, but as I started to engage with it more, I realized it wasn't something to be afraid of, but it was something that I could be curious about. Um, and, it, and it has led me down uh, a very rich uh, connection um, to impermanence, to change, to transition, um, to even death and birth. Um, I remember many years ago... Um, I, uh, I was very close uh, growing up. I was very close to my grandmother. Um, and I remember many years ago, um, I had gone to visit her and, and I was leaving town. Um, and I think I was actually, um, you know, it, it might've been a long, I didn't know when I was going to see her next. Um, I was young, so I don't remember all the details, but I do remember uh, that we were all going in a car and we had left the gate and we were all sitting in the car. And all of a sudden I was like, I want to go say goodbye to my grandma again. And my grandma was one of these people who for me was just a source of unconditional love. Um, she, whenever, you know, I would, whenever I would cry about things, she would tell me how to grieve. She would just, I, I just felt so safe in her embrace uh, and she was just always showering me with that love and here I was getting in the car about to go and it was almost like hey I'll see you later I felt this feeling that I want to go back again inside and so I opened the gate of the place where she stayed and and she had a w- little window and she was bedbound at that time and I opened um, the small little she had a mosquito net around the window and I open that up and put my hand through the, through the window. And I said, ba you know, I called her ba I said, uh, I just wanted to say goodbye. Um, and she was a little surprised that I would come back in that way. And, and I just held my hand through the window and she held her hand back and we just sort of held hands. Um, and, and, and I walked out and I was in tears as I was walking out. And there was this feeling in me that this was the last time I'm seeing her. And, and it was the last time I saw her. Um, even now, you know, just this morning, I actually have a, have a photo. Um, I asked my mom this morning, Does it, are, are there any photos of me and Ba?" you know? And so apparently there were two photos. She sent me these two photos and, um, I'll just share those real quick here. Um, this is when I was like a super, super young kid. Um, and, uh, you know, she, just her love has always been there with me. Um, but it's, a, it's the kind of thing where I think we've all experienced different, uh, so many, especially if you've lived a little bit. We've experienced death. Um, we've experienced um, different ways in which people embrace death. I remember my uh, wife's grandfather, when he passed away, before he passed away, um, he went to his son, my wife's uh, dad, my father-in-law, and he says, you know, he opens his eyes really brightly, luminously, and he says, son, this is nothing. He had really long fingers, and he waved at him, and it was almost like he was in a different place. He couldn't speak. He didn't have much strength, but he still just wanted to make this one point. Saying, don't get wrapped up in this. Um, I remember another friend here locally. Um, he he had he went through a near death experience. Clinically, he was dead for a fair amount of time, and he survived. He came back to life, and when he did, he says it was almost like his mind's capacities were elevated, and he did a whole life review almost in an instant and he saw that wow like where if I had a moment if I had an occasion to be kind why was I not kind was his takeaway um and it's 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 the kind of thing where you see you know and you read about people also not just in your life I remember reading about you know Chirag is a meditator I you know I remember reading about uh S. N. Goenka who's a meditation teacher and his mother passing away, she was bedridden, she had no strength, and before she breathed her last breath, she sits up
6: and she gets in a meditation posture. And he's right there chanting. And you don't just
4: do that because you've, you know, it's like you have to have lived in a certain way to die in that way and even Steve Jobs i don't know if you know but like Steve Jobs when he passed away you know his final words his
6: sister wrote about this his final words were oh wow 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 that's what he said and so i i look at
4: i i i look at all of my you know my relationship to death and you know, as I think about it, I think there are three, sort of three, uh, if you nuance the one relationship to death, I think there's three mini relationships in there, uh, which we can look at. Um, and I, I can share from my experience of how it has supported uh, my journey. Um, and I would say the three are um, Let's see, I'm, I'm going to, we'll have slides in, in and out throughout this presentation, so we'll see some visuals I thought would be nice. Um, but I think it's these three intersecting circles, right? My, my death, my relationship to my death. But then there's also the relationship to someone else passing away, right? Was that your, who is that other? What is my relationship to your passing away? And then ultimately, I think, what is the relationship to my life and how I live it now? And that becomes a very pressing question, right? So how, how is it that we, you know, so I, I think for me, if I look at my journey, I would say my death was perhaps not something, uh, I, I did have some fear, maybe I still do, uh, but what perplexes me even more is how I will handle the death of my loved ones, right? Like, say, like my parents, um, if I were to look at their passing away, and I would say, wow, like that would really hurt. Um, and and so, how do you hold the passing away of others? And then, ultimately, I think it does come down to how do I live in the now. If this was the very last moment, uh, how would I want it to go? And and how would I even give myself different options? Um, and so, I think all of those become very pressing questions uh, as as well. So for me, I mean, if I were to go, will I? If if you if I were to zoom in into the my death category, right? I remember. Uh, many years ago, uh, I saw, I, w- I think I was in high school, maybe I was in high school. I saw this uh, book at a store just randomly, and the title really grabbed me. Uh, it, said, it was a book by Stephen Levine who, has, who spent his whole life, he just recently passed away. He spent his whole life working uh, with the dying. And it, the title of his book was Who Dies? And I remember, you know, I'm, I, it's like, you know, Raman Maharishi's question, who am I and things, you know, things of that sort are not foreign to me. So those were inquiries I held, but who dies? There was something really interesting about that, uh, about the way that was framed, because it brings into question my relationship to my body and my identity, um, and, and there was a beautiful quote uh, by him as well. It says, we almost never directly experience what pain is. We almost never directly experience pain because our reaction to it is so immediate that most of what we call pain is actually our experience of the resistance to that pain, to that phenomena, And that resistance is usually a good deal more painful than the original sensation. And so then as I was, you know, as I was figuring out my relationship and you say, oh, my God, what if death is painful? And what all these different what if scenarios? Um, I think what's that started to invite into uh, I- into my inquiry was what exactly is my relationship to to my body? Like where 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 is the I and where is the body? And it's very uh, recently, uh, maybe in the last year or so, I, I ran across a very simple framing, um, very simple, but yet like really gets to the heart of it uh, by this guy named John Pendercrest. And he says that there are four sorts of stages of identity. And I'm, I'm just going to show them because I think uh, they're really quite compelling. Um, here we go. I think, Yeah. Um, so the first one is that I, where if you're really traumatized, you are not in your body, you don't know where you are, you can't locate yourself. And he calls this the no ground. A little bit further is where you, I am in my body. So your body is actually in the foreground. Right? The sense of me, the sense of I is I am this body. This is Nippon, and this is who I am. And the body is right there. You go a little further and you expand your awareness. And there is the sense that, oh, this is the I. And in that I, this is me. And in that me, there is this body. So the body is in me. And so the body goes from being in the foreground to the background. And then what he calls the home ground, which is that everything is in my body. And perhaps there's a few stages beyond that, but these four we can all relate to because it's not like, oh, I'm, I'm a foreground person and you're a background person, right? It's, it's that in every moment we're oscillating. We might have some moments where we're completely hijacked and we have no ground, in which case we kind of have to say, hey, where's my body? Right? And similarly, we may have a few states where we're like, oh, my God, like I am on Venus, you know, I'm connected to the cosmos. Um, but then we're back again in, with the body in the foreground. And so we're constantly oscillating between them. But what's interesting is the transitions. How do we change between each one? Um, and I think what happens is one thing that shrinks our awareness is fear. That as soon as you say, oh my God, like, where, where am I? I'm afraid of something. I'm afraid of losing. I'm afraid of losing my sense of eye. You shrink for security. And as you shrink for security, you tend to, you know, narrow your experience of awareness. And that uh, really brings us down to, you know, for let's say for if your body was in the background, it really starts to bring it in the foreground. So, so how, how do we start to look at this in the context of our own impermanence i mean that's that's a very interesting question because if your body is in the background then what happens to the body is not as as significant as if it was in the foreground and so how do we you know make sure we're heading towards the home ground what he calls the home ground where everything is in my body and not shrinking in fear right? and i remember um, I was at a, I was invited to a gathering in Canada. This was also many, many years ago. And I was, you know, some, they had given me a scholarship to go to this place. It was on Whidbey Island, I think. And I was like, I had to take all these ships to get there. And it was like a, much more than what I had anticipated. And I was hosted by a friend who had heard of the work that we were doing. And the only way to get around in this place was a bicycle. And so I did, I went to my conference and as I was coming back, I got lost and there are no lights, there's no signs. And I just felt like I've, I, I just, I lost the entire track. There was, there weren't even roads. I was just cycling. He had given me a cycle and I was just cycling. And I remember being so paralyzed by fear. I was like, oh my God. And as soon as i was paralyzed i lost my capacity to think rationally um and and i i started pedaling really fast as if i was but i didn't know where i was going but somehow i was like okay if i go really fast i'll go get somewhere and that will like somehow magically open things up it didn't and then somehow in a moment of pause i remembered something that had happened the day before i had gone out to the ocean a bunch of people had and in this part of the world there is this beautiful bioluminescence. There are these creatures in the sea that emit, and it's really visible at night, that emit this blue sort of glow. And that when you put one foot there on in, the, in the water, they, they, are, they warn you and they say, look, we're still here. We're here. So step B, you know, be mindful of your step, right? And they emit this blue glow. And it's almost like wherever you put your foot, you kind of see this blue and you're able to see. And wherever you put your next foot, you're able to see because of this bioluminescence. Um, and I realized that as I was being afraid, I just had to locate myself, be like, okay, here and now, take the next step, take the next step, take the next step, and, and with each step, like the flashlight, you can't see all the way to the end, but you can see that very next step, and that was, that was a very powerful process, but it got me thinking, what is it that helps us go, that turn down the knob of that fear uh, towards love, it's a, I actually have a, have a couple of photos of, of the bioluminescence. It's quite, it's quite uh, remarkable. This is a real photo in Hong Kong um, of what you see, but this is not what I saw. Um, what I saw was more like these small little creatures um, that were there. Um, but I think it's, it's very emblematic of, of how to hold ourselves when we are not in what John calls the home ground. Right? I think when, um, and for me, I've always, like, as I look a little deeper, uh, for me, the insights have always come through service. And so when I ask myself, you know, uh, this is a quote also by Stephen Levine, he says, when your fear touches someone pain, someone's pain, it becomes pity. But when your love touches someone's pain, it becomes compassion. And so if we care to be of service, to other people then it's like it's it's on us to do the work to move from fear to love to move from keeping body in the foreground of our identity to moving it in, moving it to the background and perhaps moving our identity all the way to the home ground and and that's the kind of cultivation that we have to do right? um so it, it's you know that's the first bit of my death right and then and then I think we get to the second bit um the second circle the second leg of the stool which is processing the death of others and I think this is where um so for me again I I at the age of 17 I was very obsessed I, I suppose is I don't know if obsessed is the right word but maybe I was um it with this notion of trying to understand, um, you know, what is it that, um, you know, what, what is this thing called life, you know, I was, I was really investigating it. And so I said, you know, I want to go to a place where I think for me, it was the scariest place to go, uh, which was to be with dying patients. So I decided I wanted to volunteer with people who were dying. And I went at 17 to a hospice and they told me, you can't volunteer here. You have to be at least 18. And so I said, okay, I'll come back at 18. And so I came back at 18 and they said, are you sure? Like you want to be with people who are dying? Like you're so young. Um, and I remember, and, and, and I did um, and, and I got trained and then I spent time with people on their deathbeds and it was so profound. It was so profound, the insights, you know, that when, when you are with somebody and all of a sudden, like you get a call the next week that you, you know, that person is no longer in their physical body and you have to learn to process that. And most of the times at 18, you're thinking, oh, what's my five-year plan, 10-year plan, all that. And it's like, oh, all this other stuff I'm going to do when I'm 65. But this invited me to like, no, if I have to do something, I got to do it now. And for me, it was like it, it was about service. If I'm going to serve, I have to serve now. Like I cannot wait till I have a, I've paid off my mortgage and I've done all these 10,000 things and I'm 65 and I'm retired. It's like I got to do it now. And I had these very profound encounters with those who were passing away. And like I remember I, I was with this one gentleman and he. Um, he, 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 he was so scared to transition and he was so alone. No one was there for him. None of his family members would even talk to him. And my job was to go and I would get him groceries and I would get him things that he liked, you know, to eat. And he had somebody to cook for him and all of that. And I remember one time I was with him and I just sat there for three hours. And I had even told him that I have I have somewhere to go, Mr. Ahern. I'll come back tomorrow, you know. And he just this particular day, he just wanted to, he was just feeling really alone, really scared. He would start talking. He had tubes going inside of him. He would start talking and he would take a giant breath and he would start talking about something. And there was no coherence. Like it wasn't like one topic or another. It was almost like. Nipun, don't go. I don't know you that well, but don't go because I'm afraid. And I realized that I wish there was a switch that I could just turn on and not make him, not see him in that way, in that state. But I didn't have that switch. And I don't think any of us have that switch. It's how we live is how we're going to experience that death. And, and so as, as, I, as I got deeper into this, I think for me, I realized that there were three sorts of, you know, when I have to process the death of others, um, there were three relationships that I was actually negotiating. One is that I, I was uh, looking at serving the grieving, right? people who are grieving, people who have lost loved ones. And then it was serving the dying, like Mr. Ahern that I spoke about. And then lastly, it was serving the deceased, right? Those who have passed on. Different cultures have different practices, different religions have different practices around it, but that's very much a, a part of that process as well. So, what does it mean to serve the grieving? And you know, they taught us all this, like they taught us um, you know, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's grief cycle. So you start with denial and then you get into anger and then you get in bargaining and then you're, you know, you, you go through depression and, and ultimately you accept and, and, and different people need So you, you need different, you need to offer different things in the first two phases. You need to give information in the second, in this bargaining phase, you need to provide emotional support. Um, in the third phase, you need to provide a little bit more guidance. Um, but what struck me was that, you know, is how unique it is to each person's journey that you can't really turn it. This is a good model. It's a fantastic model, uh, but you can't really turn it into a recipe, right? You can't turn it into because it's so, uh, so dependent on, on a particular context. Some people are able to go through that journey really quickly. Some people take them a very long time um, and you have to learn to meet people where they're at. So someone is in denial or is in anger. You'll have to meet, meet them there and serve them where, where, how they need to be served in that moment. Um, and so to me, again, what really struck me across all three of these, serving the grieving, uh, serving the dying, and even serving the deceased, which I'll speak about, is that all of them did, aren't amenable to a recipe. Like you cannot say that here's do this and it works for everybody. It does. It's, it's not like that. You, you have to actually be. And I, I'm not an expert in any of those categories. But I have known many experts in each of those categories. And they will all tell you after decades of work in, in let's say, just grieving, they will tell you that, yeah, you know, I mean, there are certain best practices. You know, Sheryl Sandberg was like this very famous personality in, in the technology world. Um, and she, when she lost her husband suddenly, she didn't know how to process the grief. And she's like in meetings with Mark Zuckerberg and all these people. And she's like, I can't think. And so she, she ended up writing a book about it. And she says, you know, everyone, and, and there's these small things that she would share, you know, she would say, well, you know, everyone says after someone passes away, it's like, oh, can I do something for you? And she says, when you ask that, you're actually putting the burden of what, you know, on, on the recipient, on the other person to figure out what they want and how to say it with you. He says, you know, uh, what is even more powerful, she says, she gives this example, she says, somebody came and says, uh, what would you like on your burger, you know, or the Indian equivalent would be what kind of chutney do you want with your samosa, you know, if you're not asking, oh, can I get you a samosa, it's like, I'm getting you something, I've figured that out, and you're already in stress, and you kind of do that, right, but so that's, that's there. I think there are those best practices, and, and there are many people who have done a lot of work around each one of these. But ultimately, I think it's very—it's dependent on each situation. It's dependent on what kind of state the other person is in, and how do you meet people where they're at? And I think that determines the efficacy of our service. And so you go from—you know—you go from uh, serving the the grieving to then serving uh the dying you know maki is on our call here today and and she actually is going to be uh our speaker in a couple of weeks after karma Lecture. um and maki has been running a hospice and she'll tell you that look as an md i remember last time she was telling a story and she says as an md you know i i I think it makes sense to take certain kinds of medications to ease certain kinds of pain in certain kinds of situations. But she says, there's always exceptions. And there's more exceptions than the norms in this kind of stuff. And she says, there was one person who came, and he says, you know, I've caused a lot of pain to other people. And I want to experience pain, don't give me any painkillers. And she says, as a doctor, what's the right thing to do? And she ends up not doing that. But you have to sort of live into the, the dynamic of the present moment, um, and and that I think is a real uh, is is a real gift as you really start to embrace uh, the mysteries of, of of impermanence and of death. Um, there was another there was a, there was another fellow I think he wrote a book I forgot his name Andrew um, I have it down somewhere here. Um, he Arnold Mitchell yeah he wrote a book called Coma. So what he would do is he would go to dying patients and he would hold their hands, but not just dying patients, patients in a coma. He would hold their hands and he would just breathe with them. He would synchronize the breathing. And he tells this story, really powerful story of, he says, one time, this guy, his name was John. All of a sudden for, for six months, he had been in a complete coma. All of a sudden he wakes up and he says, and, and here, here is Arnold holding his hand. And he wakes up and he says, did you see that? And he says, I mean, you know, Arnold, Arnold doesn't know what he's, what do you mean? See what, right? But he, that's not how he responded. Arnold says, uh, what, what did you see?
6: And he says, there's a ship. A ship is coming to get me. And he says, what kind of a ship? He says, it looks like a cruise ship. I think it's going on a vacation. And he says, uh, well, can you, can, you look at, can you go inside and take a look?
4: What exactly is going on? So he goes on. He looks inside. He says, well, I don't think it's for me, though. And he says, why not? He says, well, I got to get up and go to work. Now, this guy, John, was 80. And he had never taken a day off. He was in his 80s. Uh, he had never taken a day off work. So for him, work was a big thing. So he's like, "Oh, the ship is coming for me, but I can't go because I have to go to work." And here's this guy synchronizing his breathing, looking at him, being with him, and he's saying, "Okay, well, why don't you go inside and and see see uh, who's driving the ship?"
6: He's like, "Okay, good idea." So he goes in,
4: and he like, and this is, he's still on his bed, right? But he comes back, he opens and he eyes eyes, and he says there's some angels in there. And he's like, what do you think? You want to go on that trip? He's like, no, I got, I got to go to work, you know, but I don't think I can go on that ship. He says, well, why don't you ask if you, uh, you know, see if it's going to cost anything.
6: He says, no, it's not going to cost anything. And they have this whole dialogue. And at the end of the dialogue, he says, well, yeah, I think I'll go. And he says, uh, where, "Where is the ship going to?" And he says, "To Bermuda." He says, "But I'm not sure if I want to go or not." And
4: Arnold, holding his hand, looks at him, and he's like, "Well, I tell you
6: what. You know I trust your judgment. You decide. I've got a few people to see. I'll come back." He left in the next half an hour. When Arnold comes back, this man has passed away. He took the ship. But see, to you and I on, there, on that deathbed, we
4: would have been like, well, what ship? There's no ship. But we, we okay, we say, okay, you're, you're in that last moment. But how, how do we bring that
6: to everything that we're doing? Right? Oh, well, you have a different religion. Oh, you have a different idea. You have a different political belief. Well, that's just your ship.
4: It's okay. Yeah. What are you seeing? You know. How can I hold that with curiosity? Right? It's a really. It becomes a very compelling and powerful um, lesson. And so you know, you're you're help help you you're trying to serve the grieving, and you're trying to serve the dying, and then serving the deceased. And this is equally. Uh, you know, I mean, you have to go a little deeper into your own experiences, your own narratives and see what lands for you. Um, but I remember um, there's a Buddhist monk that many of people, many of you would know. Uh, his name is Reverend Heng Shur. And his teacher said, you know, his teacher would assign different things to different people. And he says, you, your job is to help the dying. So that's his expertise. Not many people know this. People think of him as the guy who sings songs, you know. Uh, but he's actually he's actually supports uh, the dying and, and I had this very um, impromptu spontaneous sort of moment. Um, I've, I've had the privilege of knowing him for a long time. And uh, when my wife and I used to live near the monastery we would make food offerings every week and so one week I went and his mother had just passed away. And so I, I went to drop off the food. I dropped it off with some other monks and I said, where's Reverend Haincher? He says, we don't know, uh, but maybe he might be in the main meditation hall. So I go and I saw him in the back and he was bowing. It happened to be the very exact time when her mom's body was being cremated in Ohio. And here he is, and his mom is an ardent Christian, and he's clearly a Buddhist, and his teacher said, don't worry about, you know, the labels, let her be a Christian, you do your thing, and you will be able to support. And, his, and here he is, and I happened to just walk in right then, and I saw him just bow with such deep reverence. It's really hard to describe this, um, but he was... You know, he started chanting this this chant they do in their tradition. I don't I don't know it exactly, but it roughly goes something like
6: Yin You know, it's like
4: just that's it. Like, I bow to the great compa- bodhisattva
6: of great compassion. But the way in which he was bowing, and the way in which he was saying it, it was like, wow, like, I, I'm, I'm not sure how it
4: supported his mom, but yet I'm sure it supported his mom. We have so many such rituals across, you know, in India, you do prayers for, for so long, for so many days after somebody passes away, Karma Lakshay, who's gonna be a speaker next, is, has, has tremendous insight into the actual process of, of passing away. And the, in the Tibetan culture, they've actually done a lot of research on what happens and how your body, they call it bardo, which is the space in between um, your manifestations. And in that bardo, how do you support right, your sense for your sense of hearing, incidentally, as your body transitions, your sense of hearing ends up being the last one to go. And they have really, they've really done systematic uh, analysis of this. But here you were, here I was, just feeling into this, and it was incredibly, um, it was incredibly powerful. And and so you have these three. So it's not just like your, um, you know, oh, people are passing away, but how am I serving the grieving? How am I serving um, the dying? And how am I serving the deceased? In what way? And I think holding that ends up um, inviting us uh, to this notion that, you know, that death is ultimately a mystery. That um, how do we, it's not a problem to be solved. It's not an engineer. I'm an engineer, you know, and so it's a, as an engineer, you try to solve problems. This, that mindset doesn't work here. It invites us actually to live into the mystery. It invites us to,
6: here we go, one second, to ask that can this mystery be actually
4: an invitation to bridge into compassion, to bridge into my life, um, to be, which is sort of the third sphere, um, that as I process my own impermanence, as I process the impermanence of other people and life around me, is that actually a, a bug? As we say it in computer science, you know, is that a problem or is that actually a feature? And if it is a feature that things are transient, that things change, what is the positive consequence of that feature? Could it be compassion? Could it be a heart of service? I think so. I think if we look at my life, right, that third sort of wheel, um, you know, Ajahn Chah uh, has this beautiful quote. He says, well, kind of sort of like a blunt quote, right? He says, if you see certainty in that which is uncertain, you are bound to suffer. So if you are seeking solidity in things that are fundamentally fluid, that's an impossible goal. So that is guaranteed suffering. But how do we, how do we go on the other side, right? How do we start and say, well, I want to serve with curiosity. If everything is uncertain, if everything is changing, if nothing can be grabbed onto, then how do I serve? How do I serve with curiosity? The opposite of serving with curiosity is serving for an outcome, right i serve to do this i serve to solve this problem and it seems like we can get away with that but serving with curiosity serving with a beginner's mind serving with openness serving with complete attention to the process is a very different process is a very different uh, arc it opens up a very different possibility and so if we serve with that kind of curiosity small acts with great love then I think we land into the we. And as we land into this we space, and the we space is necessarily mysterious, right? Because it's mysterious to the I, it's not actually mysterious or some mystical thing that happens, you know, it's just mysterious to the I because the I is not supposed to understand it because the I is in the world of me. So the world of me, the me is ill-equipped to understand the we. So you just need a bigger apparatus, right? You're no longer the wave. You are the ocean in which the waves arise and pass. And so we land into the we, and as you land into the we, you realize that, man, my job is just to ride the waves. No surfer goes and says, let me conquer the ocean, right? The job of the surfer is to ride the waves, to understand the waves, understand the properties, know the weather, know the atmosphere, know the context, and respond with the heart of love. And i think if we tend to do if we do that everything starts to look very very different right? and and we while we were brainstorming for this call i actually had we had um we had a remarkable friend who is on this call all the way from germany originally from chile um and she shared a story i i was on the call this is i, did, I think it was yesterday we were doing a circle and everyone started sharing these remarkable stories. And I was like, wow. And Claudia shared her story. And I said, wow, Claudia, would you be open to waking up at 5 AM your time and, and coming and sharing? And she has kindly uh, joined us. So I want to invite Claudia to share uh, her her story um, in in verse because I was just so inspired by it. And I think it's very telling um, and instructive. So Claudia, are you here somewhere?
7: Thank you. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> um well i've been hello and good morning good evening good night to everyone um i hope what i will say is useful for someone i'm always a bit nervous when i talk about this and usually i don't talk about it actually uh, because most of the time i feel people might get a bit scared or i don't know. i think everyone has their own trip in this world and um, yeah so anyway i hope it's useful um, so i've been in coma twice in my life after a sudden cardiac arrest so my heart stopped beating suddenly without any warning actually uh, so it's not that i felt the pain or that i was dc nothing happened no so I, I just my heart suddenly stopped First, when I was 27, um, attending classes in the university. And uh, that time, the doctors, I was in coma, and then the doctors didn't find anything. Actually, in many ways, it was a blessing, because then I started practicing yoga, because they told me... Um, it was due to stress, basically. That is what they told me. That the heart arrest, the heart stopped because I was too stressed with the university and work and everything. Um, so then I carry on living, but I was quite convinced I would die young anyway. My mother died quite young also of a heart arrest, so I thought, yeah, for sure, I'm going to die like that. So I, that was always on my mind. But as I was 27, still I was thinking. One part of me was thinking, I'm going to die pretty soon. The other part was thinking, I'm going to live forever. No? And then four years ago, I had a second heart arrest um, just before giving a yoga class. And actually, it was one of my students who gave me CPR before the paramedics arrived. And it was very interesting. I mean, I don't remember anything same as the first time. Um, so I was put in a coma because I was too long this time without breathing and without a heartbeat. They couldn't resuscitate me so easily. So like 20 minutes or more passed before they could get the heartbeat again. And so they had to induce a coma just to try to save my brain it was more or less like that. And when I woke up, I was very confused. So I, I don't remember the first five days, actually. Mm. And then I remember my husband telling me that I have a heart problem. And I remember myself saying, no, no, that, that's not possible. I I have a very healthy life and I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so I cannot be that I have, I have a heart problem. I already had a heart arrest and uh, it's just stress. Um, so they told me they need to implant a defibrillator in my body because my heart can, cannot really pump the blood out properly. So it's, a, the heart is quite damaged. Uh, and they think I've been living all my life with a heart like this, but because it was all my life, my body is kind of used to live with kind of this heart working half more or less. Um actually by the book, I shouldn't be doing most of what I do, but I am able to do it anyway, probably because of that, because the body found the balance uh, because all my life, my ejection fraction was so low actually. So they told me, well, this can only stay like this or get worse. If it gets really bad, you might need a heart transplant and you need the defibrillator because you really don't know when another heart arrest might come and then if no one is there, I was so lucky that both times when I had the heart arrest, someone was there. So actually only around 10% of people who have a heart arrest outside the hospital survive because these first minutes after you are kind of dead actually are really the minutes that are decisive, not to save you or not. So I knew I was very lucky both times. Um, of course, the second time I was forty something, um, close to fifty already. Now I'm fifty, and it brought a new perspective. Actually, the year before, me and a friend we were practicing with this, this Peter Levine book, "A Year to Live," like preparing to die, kind of. But then I realized I haven't done most of what I should have been doing. And from that moment, after I got the defibrillator and kind of tried to resume my life, I really, on one hand, I was a bit in denial, actually. So thinking, no, I mean, next time I go to the doctor, they will tell me my heart is fine. And also my friends were totally like not accepting, even not now, four years after, they cannot get the fact that my heart won't get better. Okay, that this is my state now. And it's fine. I have accept, accepted it. And for me, especially the first year after the second heart arrest, I really felt like enlightened somehow. Because every morning I was so, I don't know, amazed to be alive still. You know? So it was like such a privilege. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, to be alive. And... Of course, now four years after the effect has faded a bit, but still, um, every time I have to go to the hospital, I have to go a lot to the hospital for checkups. I am reminded well, actually, it is a
1: privilege to be alive. I'm sorry. And.
6: Anyway, there are things I
7: cannot do now, things that I used to do, like I cannot go hiking alone or stuff like that. I mean, I could, but of course, I don't want to put the people I love in distress, like my husband. Mm, or actually, after this happened, I didn't want to start teaching yoga again. I was very afraid of dying
1: in front of my students. And it took me a lot of
7: inner work to decide, okay, I'll start teaching again and accept whatever comes. Um, but for me, this thing of living with the dying, I mean, the thing is, any of us could drop dead the next minute, right? It is actually like that, only we live normally not thinking about it. But for me, it is so real that uh, it's really an invitation to, to be kind because in the end, I think it's the only thing we leave behind, this kindness towards other people. And, um, and also I realized that I enjoy, so I was thinking about what Boon was saying with the home ground. I think this first year after the heart arrest, I was fully in that mode because I was really enjoying so much whatever other people could do. So people were a bit nervous thinking, oh, I don't want to tell her I'm doing this because she cannot do it anymore. But actually for me, it's a source of joy to see other people enjoying things I cannot do. So when other people are enjoying, I really feel I'm enjoying too. And this, I think, is much more present for me than it was before. So this sense of, it doesn't matter if I cannot do it, as long as someone else is enjoying, right? Um, so it's this sense of, it's not me, actually, it's life. Um, I don't know if it makes sense.
4: <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you. Thank you, Claudia, um, you, uh, you, you blessed us with your story. Um, and I think where Claudia gets to is uh, essentially that I, I you know, for, for me, in my limited understanding of, of life's impermanence, um, I sense that impermanence invites us to let go of control. And in letting go of that control, we open up to tremendous grace. That things don't happen by our plan, but they're also not just happening in a chaotic way, that it, it, it invites us to expand our view, but to expand our view, not just through the limited apparatus of our five senses or our thoughts, but to actually expand our view by expanding our capacities of experience itself. And that happens through grace, that happens in a way that is not for us to deduce into an algorithm, although people in the Silicon Valley are working on algorithms to try to get there. Um, but how do we live into that grace? And I think understanding the three sort of stools of, um, or the three legs of that stool, right? My own death, my relationship to my death, how it's connected to the relationship of the passing of others, and how it's really connected to how I show up as Claudia so beautifully shared, and for those of us that are lucky enough to know Claudia, you know that she we call her a fairy, you know, an angel, because she kind of comes and she, she, she adds her pixie dust you know, of love through even the smallest things that she's doing. You just feel like, wow, you know, here's somebody who's giving with no strings attached, no agenda. She's just showing up um, in the spirit of service. Um, and she's there because she's totally embraced this notion that, man, this moment is, is what we got. I'll end with a story uh, of uh, someone who uh, has, has been an inspiration um, for many people. He was an artist. He was a sculptor and he uh, had very few things. He had a, he had a workshop uh, with very high ceilings and he would make these sculptures and and he was such a, you know, he, he's, a, he's a tremendously, he started sculpting at the age of four. And he's such a talented sculptor that he, some of, in fact, his statue of Gandhi that he made is in Times Square in New York. Um, but he has, uh, he has certain practices, right? Like he will never sign any of his uh, pieces of art. And although he's like, you know, some of the most renowned uh, saints of our time even, like Anand Maimai, right? She would come and she says, you know, Kanti, his name is Kanti, Kaka. Kanti, uh, I'm going to come and stay in your workshop. I mean, such a tremendous saint. And she's like, yeah. And, and she wouldn't want any, any statue done of hers, but she says, you do it because you're doing much more than a statue. And so he did. And so he was this kind of a person, extremely simple. And when he passed away a few years ago, uh, we were reminded of a beautiful song. We've had the occasion, many of us, perhaps some of us on this call as well, have had the occasion to know him and to be with him. Um, and he he sang this one song um, that I want to end with. Um, but before that song, I want to show you a photo, uh, which I found to be inspiring because it was the kind of person that he was. He was so simple. He lived so simply. It was almost like he was in the home ground in this body was just like whatever was happening was just happening to the body and all the byproducts of like the stuff that he did in the world was also just as light he didn't take any ownership of it and and when we even asked him at one point we says uh, Kanti gaka what do you you know how do you know when a piece of art is done and he looks at us and he says when i know that i haven't done it so he was clearly not doing the external work. He was doing this profound inner work. And one time when we were all together with him, um, he, he sang this beautiful song, which we actually captured on tape, which I'm going to play for you um, just to close it out. Um, and, and prior to that, you'll see uh, that the simplicity with which he lived was the simplicity with which he passed. Absolutely no friction because he... He had. Uh, he was rooted in the home ground. Um, here you can see uh, that extremely humble uh, photo, and here he is in the video. Um, and we can perhaps, I think, we have a little bit of time afterwards to do some Q and A. Um, but we will end with this video here.
8: Game came crying, crying, shall go laughing, laughing. We came crying, Roche Roche as a, as a, as a child. Amkin Deem samashe. crying, crying, shall go laughing, laughing. came, came, and three times, every time, this street, three, three numbers is very important. In the race also, one, two, three. <laughs> Sattva, Raja, Dhamma, all these qualities should be Sattva, Raja. Young age, childhood, young age, old age, all three. So three times. I have I said this three times. It is very important three times. He came crying, crying, shall go laughing, laughing. Game, game, game. Life is a game. Game, game, game. Life is a game. Sometimes it is like this. Sometimes it is like that. You know this duality. It happens in our life. Sometimes it, some person may be happy with us. Sometimes it becomes angry. Sometimes it is like this. Sometimes it is like that. Game, game, game. Life is a game. every he- scene that every incident you take like a game and you will s- solve your problem very easily. We came crying, crying, said, go laughing, laughing. Game, game, game. Life is a game. May I tell you one thing. It's a lesson for all and tell you, see, it's a lesson for all, no demands forever, no demands forever. Just give, give and give, give, give and give. Game, 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 life is a game. He came crying, crying, saying, go laughing, laughing. Game, game,
1: game, life is a game.
6: Thank you. Um, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Claudia. And
4: thank you, uh, Chirag and Puniven, for, um, for evoking Prathanas consciousness that allowed us uh, to come together in this way and to hold such uh, sacred thoughts.
0: Thank you, Nikunvai. Thank you so much uh, for this lovely sharing. and. Uh, you know, one of the things which uh, I'm taking away is this importance of cultivation uh, of, you know, trying to shift yourself from the no ground to the, uh, you know, the foreground to ultimately the home ground, which is the shift from me to we to us. And uh, I think, uh, so one of the questions which comes in, I think, uh, which is uh, common for many people, that uh, is this question of, time like sometimes we feel that you know these things are something which is to be done in old age like you know why you are young like to any young person i think you know as a young person i at least used to used to listen that a lot uh, five years ago i'm not that young now uh, but <laughs> that uh, that you know these are things to you know meditate upon your death maybe like 45 is a good time to start or 50 or 60 65 like you know is a good time to start doing things why waste your prime and youth you know on such morbid topics and, uh, and similarly, even for renunciation or generosity, I think all of these things which are quite linked. And so that's one thing that uh, what is this relationship of cultivation of the shift uh, with regards to time. And also on the other end, I think some people uh, uh have an aha moment uh, somewhere maybe in the elder age and and they could feel that oh i'm so far off like you know if you have a glimpse at really the universal principles and the truth and and there's a feeling of i think helplessness or regret which comes in that you know i'm so far off and i just have so little time left to cultivate so will i really be able to make any meaningful difference so imagine a person on their deathbed and just having a few days or or you know so what uh, would you Think that how do we engage with time as a variable in this uh, question?
4: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I think a very real question, right? We all face um, the time. Sometimes we feel like, oh, my God, there isn't enough time. Sometimes we feel like, oh, that's something we have to do much later. I would actually, the way I look at it is I would not, I would take time out of the equation altogether because time itself is a construct of the mind and we have to go beyond the senses and the mind if we are going to actually come alive, right? And, and so I would go outside the construct of time, but the logic I would use, at least the logic I have used up to this point, is to say, this is just a design upgrade, right? If you are gonna, you know, if, if you have a flowing river and in the flowing river, you take a bucket and you're playing in that puddle of your bucket, that's you know maybe that makes you happy for a little bit and after a while it's going to evaporate and you're going to have all kinds of you know you're going to start missing it and but the other option is to actually find it in yourself to cultivate the resources to go out and you know be in the ocean be in be with the river um, and so I think I think the question is the the if you can do it now like no better time there's no other time than now like regard even if I'm on my deathbed. I hope that I would do it in the now. If I am, you know, if I was born again and I was like, you know, two years old and I had the wherewithal, I w- I hope I would start at the age of two. Um, so I don't. I think it's independent of where you start. I think all of us. So so many of us have gathered here today on this call. We're all different circumstances and different ages, but we can all uh, make a resolve to say, look. I, I want to be, I want to tap into the, I want to do whatever I need to do right now so I can tap into the Claudia spirit to say she is genuinely, she is tearing up for the gift of being alive on this call here and now. Why are we all not tearing up for that gift? Because we have somehow bought it into ourselves. As Chirag said early on, that somehow we think that, oh, I've got time uh, or, oh, this is something that I'll deal with later. Uh, this is something if we, if we deal with here and now, I think it's the most powerful, but I think the consequence of living in the now is compassion. What are you going to do? If you have this moment, I'm living to my fullest. What does it mean to live to your fullest? Does it mean eating ice cream? I can imagine Raghu smiling, you know, um, you <laughs> a vegan friendly ice cream. Maybe, um, yeah, does it mean like, yeah, let me just eat all the chocolate I can. What is that
6: chocolate for you? Chocolate for me is service. Chocolate for me is compassion. Chocolate for the Buddha. What he
4: said, he talked about the four brahma viharas, the four resident states. This is true according to the Buddha of all life. And compassion is one of those four. Joy, equanimity, loving kindness are the other other three. And so I think it's a matter of like doing what we can. Figuring out how to tap into that mind state here and now so that we can get into our element, figure out what that chocolate is, and move forward. And maybe compassion doesn't come naturally. Maybe service doesn't come naturally. Uh, then maybe, you, But you experiment in that direction. What is it that's making you come alive? And as you do that, you may discover that oh, actually, I thought bungee jumping made me come alive, but after I did that twenty times, there may be something you know. I realized I actually liked the inner sensation of it, and then you unpack that, and you're like, oh, I actually liked this underneath that sensation, and you start unpacking, unpacking, and and you arrive at your own conclusion. So I would say start now. No place like now.
0: Thank you, and. Uh... I would just like ask one more question from my end and then we'll move on to a few of the audience questions so we have actually received many powerful audience questions and even if you would like to uh leave a question or a comment now you can do so by the uh the comment box and the live stream page and we also have a few listeners live on the call who have been supporting the call more deeply with us so we'll love to hear a couple of voices so, just a quick last question from my end is uh, I think related to this. So, you spoke earlier that when we meet suffering from a place of fear, then it creates pity, then it gives rise to pity. And when we meet suffering from a place of fearlessness and wisdom, then it evokes compassion. So, when we meet someone who might be in their dying stages, and sometimes, like, you know, Chirag shared that uh, th- their daughter was just Nine, eight years old when she passed away so uh, if we meet someone like you know it could be an old person or a young person who is in the dying stages or very unwell or suffering a lot uh, so of course mm-hmm. there's one part of our intention as to support them is to look after the bodies to support their health and see if you know we can uh, make them better if they can live longer but uh, like from a heart of compassion, I think what are some ways because that's something an inevitability because the body will pass away from a heart of compassion? I think what would you recommend are the ways in which we can support the person's journey? Uh, uh if you have anything to offer on that,
4: yeah, um, I, I think that's also a very uh, common sort of situation where you are, you are encountering the suffering of others and you, you, your heart feels called to respond. And so many times we don't know how to respond. Um, and so many times, um, I, I would say almost all the time, regardless of whether we know how to respond or not know how to respond, it is pointing to something significant in us. The mere fact that we are noticing the suffering of others means that we, there is something in us that notices our own suffering. We, can, we cannot recognize anything on the outside that isn't in us already. And so if, we're, if we recognize that, I think that's a blessed moment. And then from that recognition, then the second thing is, how do I respond? And you know, you can like, like I gave the Sheryl Sandberg example. There's so many books out there that would tell you so many different things. I don't know if I have a specific recommendation, but what I would share is that I think it's an invitation to live into that moment and to live into that moment with an open heart and to allow the guidance of that moment the guidance of those conditions
6: to evoke a sort of skillful response is the I, I think that's the art
4: of service the art of service isn't something you've heard about on a you know on an awakened talk and then you copy paste it and you're like oh great like i got this like you know instead of saying uh what can you do i'm going to ask you what chutney do you want on your samosa uh, yeah, that's helpful. Uh, but sooner or later, you're going to run across situations where you don't know what to do. But so the best way to equip yourself to know what to do is to actually learn skillfulness. And the skillfulness comes from this practice of living in the now, of actually coming alive. You know, Howard Thurman had this very beautiful quote. He says, don't ask so much what the world needs. Go out and do what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs most are people who have come alive. And if, if I'm suffering, do I want to be next to a person who is like a PhD in solving that suffering? Or do I want to be next to a person who has come alive? I want to be next to a person who has come alive. Because that person will know how to dynamically respond in that moment. Not just from his head. Not just from his hands. But from his heart. And the heart's intelligence is actually incredibly it, it, the, the purview of that. It encompasses so much more uh, than we might even imagine. Um, so I, I, I would say for like, you know, I, I'm not an expert in any of those sorts of things. I, I could tell you a few things that have helped me. I could tell you a few things that I have read about, um, but I would say for me, the, most, the deepest thing um, is to actually uh, practice uh, being alive because those people, as soon as you, if, if, no matter what you're suffering, if you run across somebody who has, who is, uh, you know, come alive in that way. I remember a guy who I, I went into an ice cream store. This is like, I don't know, decades ago. I'm just remembering this right now. Um, and he gave me, he scooped up the ice cream. And he gave me an ice cream, which I had ordered. There was nothing significant about it. And then he just looked at me and he just smiled. And I can tell you that smile just nourished. I, I, he was a mystic of some sort. I don't know. He was, a, he was a guy behind the ice cream counter, but something happened in me. And that was very, very profound. And I've had repeated encounters with so many different people and then the question I ask myself is, do I want to be an expert in XYZ category, or do I actually want to be an expert in living the emergence now? Do I want to be an instrument of nature? St. Francis of Assisi would go out to the birds, and he would say, he would give sermons. All the birds would gather and listen to his sermons, and he would say, you know, preach always, use words only when necessary. I mean, here was a man who had come alive. And so how do we learn to go alive? And I think once you do that, then, then the skillfulness will naturally fall into place. Um, so that would be my response is to go, you know, really start to come alive at so many dimensions of our existence. And that aliveness will inform the right skillful response in that moment. And sometimes that is to do nothing. And that's, you know, you, you realize that it's not all the, all the problems in the world are not yours to solve. Uh, and you come to that uh, understanding by actually lend, riding the waves of impermanence. I, I, I don't think that answers your question, but <laughs> that's,
0: that,
4: that's how I think about it. So hopefully, maybe I, I'm sure others have much better responses, even on this call. So I look forward to learning more in the series. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Thank we you. have, oh, sorry. So we have many. Go questions.
0: for it. Yeah.
2: We have, many, we have many questions coming in, in the chat and from our guest listeners. So I would actually like to invite Carrie next
1: on video to ask her next question to you. Is Carrie ready? Is Carrie here? Yes.
9: There we go, there we go. Thank you so much, Magna. Uh Nipun, thank you for sharing so much. And Claudia, oh my goodness, and Chirag, thank you. Um, my question came from looking at the, the topic was the death of the I and the, uh, the birth into the we. And the question very simply is in, in this conversation, you've had this conversation with hundreds and thousands of people. When we're talking about the death of the I and the birth of the we, it's not necessarily a physical death that we are talking about. So my, my question was, what fears do you find people are bringing forward in a conversation that's not about a physical death, something that's a non-physical death? What fears do people bring forward? And then the, the second part of it is what fears, if any, do you still dance with in your conversations with death?
4: Both beautiful questions. Uh, you know, I think if you don't, if you have a non, uh, w- the death of the I, the death of the me, or even the weakening, the dying of the me, um, it, like why is that so difficult? And I think it's because of the constant grasping. Uh, I would just go to the, you know, the Buddha said very, very simply, very clearly, that is the source of all problems is our clinging. We just cling. And we cling, I think, not just to material things. We also cling to spiritual things. And that becomes very tricky. We cling to our ideas of love. We cling to our ideas of all kinds of right doing. Um, and I think that becomes that clinging is, you know, creates attachment as shrinks, it's necessarily if you're looking at a lemon on a tree, like you're so hyper focused on that lemon and you're thinking how many lemons you're going to bag and you're going to profit that you forget that oh there's branches and then oh there's a stem and oh there's roots which I can't see but I can feel into, and oh my God there's a whole ecosystem that the roots are nourished by and oh my God, like I can't even hold all of that. Like, what am I, you know? And, and I think that is threatening to the ego, to the I. And I think that's really the biggest struggle um, in, in, at its core. Um, and I, yeah, for me, I still struggle with that same permanence. Like, I, you know, I think we all want continuity. I think that's our biggest addiction is continuity. So we want to say, I know this, and, and now I know this in the next moment. And now I know this in the next moment. But, but the thing is that it's, it's, it's a dynamically moving landscape. And so how do you get out of this addiction uh, to continuity? Um, that is it actually, you know, is it me breathing and me come, you know, it, it, like, is it the same breath? It's not the same breath in each moment. Um, so many times on, our, on my own retreats, you know, I would like look out and I would look at the bird and I would just be mesmerized and say, is the bird moving or is my mind moving? And, you know, and then I would be like, yeah, birds moving, you know, <laughs> but that's my problem. I mean, that's, that's where I'm, you know, that's, you know, there's layers and layers that I have to kind of uncover. Um, so. Um, that's, that's where I'm at. Thank you for the question.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Nipendai. So next we're going to club two questions together.
2: One is we have a question from Ruth and she asks, does helping others transition actually help in contemplating your own death? Um, and the next question, we'll actually invite Vinod on video to share uh, as well. So, if Vinod is
1: online, maybe he can share. Or I can read his question too.
6: If, uh,
3: <clears throat> I mean, not if death is the only certainty in life, I mean, it comes <laughs> like, and death comes free with life, right? So, if <laughs> this is why this is where we are headed. It only makes sense to prepare for death. in a sense, the purpose of life is to prepare for death. So how do you do how do you prepare for death in a very practical, tangible manner, and not you know I mean, not in a theoretical I mean you know, uh, theoretical sense, how do you prepare for death in a practical sense, on a, um, from moment to moment?
6: Yeah. I I think I think this is the title
4: of the talk. I think the more things you can do to be in the we state is our preparation for the death of the me. Um, it's just quite as simple as that. So if and and then you can ask the question and say, well, you know, how am I is am I in a me state or am I in a we state? And that's a problem for each person to solve individually, right? Because so many times the me is masquerading as we. And that's a really vicious problem of the ego. And so I, you know, uh, for me, the most practical thing is that what is it that puts you in the we state? And if you can uh, go out and, and engage in that way and let that be the guide, like the bioluminescence, you know, let you take that one step and let that guide you about where you need to go. Um, and that's what I do. Uh, I, you know, this is an extremely practical thing. Whenever, when, whenever I get wounded, whenever I feel hurt, whenever I feel like life is not right, or I feel confused, like why are certain things happening in certain ways? I resort back to service in, in that very moment. And my wife can tell you so many examples, uh, you know, where it's like, you know, when the going gets tough, like you have to pick up your, you know, your, your conviction and you say, okay, going is tough for the me, I want to step out and head into the we, and you need that apparatus. And I think as you get farther along, I think you, one realizes that your own individual willpower is also not sufficient. For the initial challenges, maybe it is, you know, you're like, OK, instead of watching TV, I'm going to go do the dishes for, you know, that that maybe my son or daughter or my wife was supposed to do. Right. Like, OK, that sounds easy enough to do. As you get deeper down the rabbit hole, you realize that, oh, you can't do this just because you want to do this. Um, and you say, well, what will help me? And this is where the community of noble friends helps you. If you, don't, if you haven't cultivated, but those are both connected because if you serve in creating that moment of service, in creating that moment of we, in departing from the me orientation into the we, as we step into that, we are invariably creating the pathway for deep connections and deep friendships. And that is the resilience which allows us to continue even when the ego's willpower uh, is not sufficient to actually help you transition from uh, me to me. Um, so I, I, I think it's a very practical, I would just say, I, it, it sort of Kandikaka gave the recipe, right? Give, give, give. Like he's, he's an incredibly saintly person. He's saying no demands forever. This was the conclusion of his song. No demands forever, which is so hard. He said it so simply. He's saying, don't let the ego control the ship. And give, give, give. So even when it does, like just give, and it'll feel like giving so long as you have demands, so long as there's a me, but as the me dilutes, it doesn't even feel like giving, it's just what you do. And I think that's a regenerative sort of loop. Um, and to Ruth's question, like, can helping others transition uh, support your own transition? I think that's absolutely a universal law. What you do unto others, you are doing unto yourself. So I, anything that I, have, I feel like there's a lack of, I will try to give that. It's counterintuitive, right? That if, if I feel like I, you know, I, I don't have you know, enough oranges, then like, how should I just give away my oranges? Uh, but that's how nature works. Um, you know, and and I, I think what fear tends to do is actually, uh, it tends to uh, you know, contract us in the opposite direction. So you're like, oh, I got to keep my oranges. So you're like right there, but actually, the more you know, it's like you, the, the more the the more money you give to others, the more uh, material affluence over time you'll have. The more clothes you give to others, the more clothes you'll have. This this is what the sages say. And so, if you give people uh, material, you'll have material. If you give people courage, you'll have courage. Uh, if you give people insight, you will have insight. And that's what the Buddha described as the three sorts of three core giving, material giving, uh, giving of courage and the giving of insight. And so I would say, uh, you know, to yes, absolutely. And it has worked like that in my life. I used to be afraid, but then actually, that's probably what propelled me to go uh, and engage with the hospice. Um, and as I did that, like the more I did that, the more I realized, oh, this is not something to be afraid of. This is something to be curious about. And the more I got curious and the more I served, I realized actually it was serving myself. So it's the age old thing that says in, it is in giving that we receive. Uh, but I think the nuance here is that if you give in a very specific way, you receive in that
6: particular way in the larger domain. So thank you for the question.
1: we can't get enough of your responses
2: but we have maybe one or two more to go and then maybe we can take these questions perhaps on a feed or on offline but i'd like to
1: invite nilima on video to ask her question next hi nippon as always just such a deep pleasure um, but my question is,
7: what about the experience of a death wish that people feel when they are depressed, when they cannot access the feeling
1: Claudia has of the privilege of being alive?
4: Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by a death wish? Are you saying if, if one is feeling like ending their life prematurely? Yes. Yeah.
10: Or that nothing yeah. matters.
4: Yeah, if, if you are in, if one is in the no ground, um, these were the four stages uh, that, um, you know, that John Pendergrass uh, laid out, if one is in the no ground, uh, it's natural to feel in this way. So I think if to meet somebody in the no ground, like if you if you talk about the home ground to somebody in the no ground it doesn't make sense. Even if we talk to ourselves about the home ground, it's just going to be like, Oh my God, like that's, you know, <laughs> okay. You read it in some book, you know, it's not relevant for me. Uh, so I think if someone is in the no ground, really the journey is to go to the foreground uh, and to help them go to the foreground, uh, which is to just get very literal and help people find their bodies. Um, I've, I've been at meditation retreats where, uh, in the middle of a retreat, like, you know, people feel uh, suicidal. And uh, I mean, I was at, at one retreat, I was I was assigned to this one person. I was just volunteering and this, I just had to sleep with him. I had to do everything 124 hours a day with that person. Um, and you just kind of have to respond to the needs of that moment. But you're, it's, it's, no lo- it's not about like the lofty, you know, uh, homegrown background stuff. I think it's about taking the baby step. And so for me, what I would say is in serving, and again, I'm not, you know, I, I have friends who have uh, helped many, many suicide victims, and they would have much more profound things to say. Um, but from what I have learned from them, uh, and in general, is that I think you have to meet people where they're at, and that requires you to be flexible. It's, it's sort of like that story with the ship that I had shared earlier, where it's, a you know, you, maybe you can't relate to the ship, but if you can't relate to the ship, you can't reach their heart. So you have to, so it's like, and that takes a huge heart to actually say, okay, I'm going to work, I'm going to do some extra work. Figure out how I can create enough resources to deal to to you know uh, make sense of the ship inside of me, so that I can hold your hand while you're navigating and finding your way to the angels inside that ship. And that's just uh, that takes a, that takes time, um,
6: that takes heart. Uh, it just takes tremendous amount of of love and patience.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Nipundai. And perhaps one last
2: question. Um, and I think this is a, a little um, personal question also, but uh, Ankita has asked a question, how do we prepare or speak to children for death? And knowing of your various conversations with children as well, um, and personally having a child myself, uh, who recently, my daughter is 10 years old, and she witnessed a friend of hers, 14 year old, two weeks ago who committed suicide. And that was very alarming for her to even process. While death, seeing someone die is one thing, but to hear of someone her age or around that age die, how do we have a conversation of death and birth of we and showing up in this context from no ground to home ground with children so if we can share a little about that that would be nice.
4: Yeah these are hard questions um you know I, I, I don't have kids and I don't have experience in talking to young people about death in that way um, but I have talked to you know I do have exposure to young kids and I have talked to them uh, about, about it. I think, I think one thing is I wouldn't make it a taboo thing. So I wouldn't make it a, oh, let's not talk about it. And I think it kind of relates to how one might, uh, engage with their parents. Um, because at that, that, I have experience with, I do, I think Chirag said this in the introduction, you know, I, I do talk with them. They kind of, they're like, oh, there's the phone. It's almost like 99% of our conversations will have death in it. Um, and it's to celebrate impermanence, is to celebrate change. Now, I wouldn't talk in the same way to a child as I would to an elder. Uh, but I think one thing is that, like, really helping people see the power of change, the power of fluidity over the power of solidity. And we tend to think that, oh, the more you cling. And I myself was like, I was so worried that I'm like, oh my, when I was young, I would be like, if my parents died, like, how will I know how to do anything in the world? I'll be all by myself. I remember having that conscious thought still, you know, um, and at that point it's like for that person, you kind of have to build them into, a, you know, it's like before you can throw away the ladder, you first have to climb up the ladder. And so you kind of have to give them the solidity. Uh, of being loved, of being in a safe space and being comfortable that things do change. And that is not a problem. That's actually a strength. And that as you open the doors of change, you may discover new gifts that are there for you. Um, and I think if, if the parents themselves are rooted in that, it's very hard actually for the parents to be rooted in that. Because if, if your child does something that you are not expecting. How do you embrace that? Right? I mean, if you say if you are static, if you are fluid in your parenting style, and then you're telling them, "Oh well, just embrace change," that doesn't quite work. But if you are absolutely, you know, if you're able to have a strong back, sure, but a soft heart, you lean in, and as you lean in, you're they're able to feel into that. That even though it's not conceptual, they will realize that oh. This is, the world is not a scary place. It's a friendly place. And I have the inner ecosystem to navigate that because my parents gave me that love. And then when something unexpected happens, you deal with that in a very different uh, way. You're much more open. You're not thinking, oh my God, an alien ship has just landed. Oh, that's fear. That's World War Four or whatever, World War III. Um, you're thinking, oh, let me be curious. Let me serve. How do I, you know, what's behind this door? And I think there's a skillful way of probably engaging uh, with, because I've, 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 seen, I've seen this with a few kids that I've been exposed to and how they're actually more um, natural than parents, than older people, because older people are much more, you know, they're like, you know, Byron Katie shares this example of like, you know, this kid, uh, her grandkid uh, falling down. And as she falls down, she starts crying. And, and Byron Katie looks at her and says, uh, well, she initially, she doesn't know if she should cry or not, right? It's, it's just pain, like there's no resistance to the pain. And so she's like, hmm. That sounds okay, no, not a big deal. And then she's like looking around processing and then she's like, oh, my grandma's looking at me. And then she starts crying and, and her grandma being by her and Katie looks at her
6: and says, oh honey, did you just uh, remember that pain hurts? And she was like, oh yeah, I did. And then she kind
4: of let it go and the pain was gone and she was, you know, so to, to be that kind of a parent is actually, I would say, uh, more than the strategy. And again, there are probably many people who have written you know, thousands of books on how to, how to uh, engage with kids about this in a very immediate way. Um, but I would say that ultimately the deepest container that you are holding for your kids is who you are being. And if in that being, you are not bringing expectations, you are not bringing all kinds of solidity from one side. If you are actually fluid, then that will create a safe space for them to be fluid.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Nipunbhai. Uh, and thanks to all the listeners and all the volunteers and everyone who uh, has blessed this call for this gathering to convene. And we are already over time, but uh, I would just like to say that thank you Bhai, for your that state of being which you just spoke about that serving with curiosity and love, which uh, allows us even in this you know uh, in this world of impermanence of our own impermanence and everywhere around us, but it allows us to come alive uh, in this world of impermanence and suffering, but it allows us to come alive and celebrate uh this moment here and now and be grateful and, and joyful and see it as a privilege uh, every moment that we have. So thank you so much, uh, everyone. Uh, to close, uh, First, uh, I would just like to make a logistical announcement that this is like the first talk in this series. So we'll be having a couple more talks and previews, uh soon coming after that, and there'll be all, also a lot of other ways to dive deeper together in this co-creative inquiry. So we'll, uh, you know, follow up and you know connect more on email with various opportunities. And now I would like to invite a minute of silence in gratitude for all the conditions which allow us to convene and to reflect and to be the change. And after that minute of silence, I would request uh, a couple of volunteers Rahul and Kinnery to open that silence with a closing prayer, uh, which really I think at, in, at its heart talks about this uh, uh, really waking up to the true I, which is not just I, but in this field of we and in this field of oneness. So. Thank you and uh, invite a minute of silence.
1: Welcome back, everyone.
10: Thank you so much for the opportunity to make this uh, humble offering in remembrance of Prathana. The offering is uh, the song of the self or as I may say, the song of uh, the home ground by Shankaracharya who of this planet uh, in the ninth century, in the eighth century. So Shankaracharya eloquates at this uh, eternal question of who am I? And the first few paragraphs uh, is negating of who this I or this real self is not. And he classically eliminates the usual suspects. For instance, in the first paragraph he says, and uh, Vivekananda translates that I'm not the mind, the intelligence, the ego, or the individualized conditioned consciousness. Nor am I the sense organs of hearing, tasting, smelling, or seeing. Nor am I the body of the five great elements that is earth, fire, air, space, and water. So who am I? Shankara says, chidananda rupa shivoham shivoham. I am the auspicious, blissful, unconditioned consciousness. The refutation of who I am not goes on in the next few paras. In summary, he says, I'm not the motor organs, the sense organs, the indriyas, or the vital energy, the pranas of the body. I'm not raga dvesha, I'm not attraction or repulsion, nor the greed, nor the delusion, nor the arrogance, nor the jealousy. I'm not, the effect, I'm not affected by merit, or by sin, punya or pap, nor the pleasure and pain. He also says that this self, this ultimate self has no father or mother, as I am that which has no birth or death. Nor do I have any brothers, friends, guru or disciple. And each of these paragraph ends with the assertion, chidananda rupa shivoham shivoham. I am the auspicious, blissful, unconditioned, consciousness. And the last paragraph then asserts, the I that I am is beyond distinction and form. The I that I am is all pervading in everything, in all that could be perceived. And also in that apparatus which perceives, I am all that is unchanging and unaffected by time. I am the auspicious,
1: blissful, Unconditioned
11: Consciousness. Javyo mabhu mirna tejo navayu Jidhananda rupa shivoham shivoham sure. Na punyam na papam na, savkyam, na Na mantra, na, na vedana, na yajna. Aham bojanam na eva bhojyam na bhokta. Chidananda shivoham shivoham. Na me mṛtyu shankā na Chidan Rupa Shiboham Shiboham Aham Nirvi Niraka Nihupo Vibhul Vana muktirna bandhah Chidananda rupa shivoham shivoham Chidananda rupa shivoham shivoham
1: Chidananda
0: Thank you so much to all and we'll stay connected and see you again. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to a recording of Awaken Calls. To access archives, visit us at www.awaken.org.
1: And to get more involved, volunteer at www.servicespace.org.